Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Space Chams podcast. I'm your host, Jim Murphy, and today we have a very special guest, a veteran astronaut, planetary scientist, author, speaker, and pilot, Thomas David Jones. Sir, it's an honor to have you here. How are you doing today? Hi, Jim. I'm fine, and I'm good to be. I'm glad to be with you, and I'm looking forward to talking with all your listeners about uh, some questions about space exploration and the future of humanity out there in space, and of course, my own space experiences too. Yes, we are very excited to have you. All my listeners, all all twelve of them, are very excited to hear you. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure when we get to talk to somebody who has so much experience in space um, and has the obvious shared enthusiasm of everyone who listens so it's it's great to have you here today thanks for coming on our little podcast you're welcome all right the easy question the one that i'm her i'm sure you've heard a million times did you always know you wanted to be an astronaut i can remember when i was 10 years old that i wanted to be an astronaut and i think that was because i was growing up in the space age in the space race, the race to the moon in the 1960s. And so the early astronauts, the Mercury and Gemini astronauts, like Alan Shepard and John Glenn and Ed White and Gus Grissom, and these, these men, these explorers were always in the news as the nation tried to catch up with the, uh, the, the Soviet Union uh, in the space race. And it really meant a lot to everybody in terms of national security that we compete and compete well in this field. And of course, you know, by the time I was 10 years old in the mid 60s, we were already competing in this moon race that President Kennedy had set us, set us on uh, to try to put the first person on the moon ahead of the Soviets. And so this was a big deal to all the adults around me. And it was certainly on TV. Uh, we would interrupt classes at my elementary school when there was a blast off or a splashdown and we'd stop everything and watch this occur on a black and white TV set. So, you know, you certainly got the undercurrent message that this was an important activity. And I was just fascinated by going into space, the idea of exploring someplace that nobody had uh, been to before, a destination that humans could only dream of in science fiction just a few years before. And here it was actually happening in front of my eyes. So, yes, by the time I was 10, I was really fixated on the space race and learning everything I could about that jobs with, with the hope of one day getting there myself. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I think a lot of kids dream is to go to space, but then to have, to meet someone who actually <laughs> fulfilled that dream is pretty awesome. Um, and so going along with that, is there a, like your journey, how did you get to space? So you said you always wanted to be an astronaut. So how did you make your way there? Like I am a history major. It's going to be tough for me to become an astronaut, but what, is there a way to get there? Is there a clear path to becoming an astronaut? I think there are even more paths to getting to be an astronaut now than there were when I was a kid. Uh, back when NASA was the only game in town, and that was, that was the situation for 50 years uh, with no commercial space flight options available, you, you just read in the newspapers what the qualifications were. You know, by the time I was uh, in high school, you could write to NASA and they would send a, a, a packet back of uh, facts about astronauts and what the qualifications were. And so back then in the 60s, going to the moon, NASA was hiring mainly military test pilots. You know, the, the, the Mercury 7, all the Gemini astronauts, they were all, all exclusively military test pilots from the Air Force and the Navy and the, the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, these were the skilled aviators that NASA was looking for. So I thought when I was in high school that that's the path that I would have to follow. So I needed to get myself into the flying game and through the military was the only path you could follow. So I thought I would go to the Air Force Academy and, you know, that's a that's a very competitive business to get an appointment to a military academy, but I succeeded at that. Went to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and learned to fly while I was there with the eye towards becoming an Air Force officer and a pilot. And then, then I would become a test pilot and, and get to NASA that way. So, you know, I, I knew all through my high school years that I had to prepare in math, in science to get ready for this eventual competition. At the Air Force Academy, I was a major in basic science, a lot of math and physics, basically, and graduated from uh, there, went to pilot training, and I had my hopes set on a fighter assignment so I could be one of these 
fast moving, you know, hot shot pilots that NASA would be looking for. And unfortunately, you know, the big giant Air Force omniscient computer assigned me to bombers as my first assignment out of pilot training. So I was crushed. I thought here in what it was about 1978 and I had a bomber assignment and I thought, well, that's going to go nowhere. I'm really, I was really disappointed. Uh, it brought me to tears that uh, the Air Force couldn't see my obvious talent and send me to the fighter assignment I wanted. And so, uh, you know, but even the, even the bomber squadrons have to have good pilots in them. So they, they sent me over that way. And so while I was flying the B-52 bomber down in Texas during the Cold War, um, that's when NASA shifted from Apollo and the moon landings and Skylab, our first space station, over to this new reusable space plane called the shuttle. And the space shuttle was going to be the uh, America's space truck and haul everything into orbit for the next uh, generation. And so I looked at this uh, new development, very excited about watching the first launch of the shuttle in 1981. And so if I wasn't going to be a test pilot, and it was difficult without any bomber test programs going on at the Air Force, and it was difficult to get into test pilot school as a bomber pilot. So I looked at what was going on, and I looked at the space shuttle's crews, and there were five, six, seven people on a shuttle crew. Two of them were test pilots at the controls for launch and landing, but everybody else was a scientist or an engineer in what was a new astronaut variety called a mission specialist. And mission specialists had the job of doing all of the science work. They deployed satellites, they ran the robot arm, they did spacewalks. They were responsible for a lot of the, um, the money in any given mission. They were, the, they were the money guys. And yeah, you needed test pilots to land the plane back on earth and to blast off, but, um, I thought there were more mission specialists on every crew than pilots, so I thought maybe my odds would be increased by becoming or shooting for a mission specialist job. And to, to qualify for any astronaut job, you have to have at least four years of education in college, science or engineering. You need general good health, you need three years of work experience. And so I thought, well, if I'm gonna qualify as a mission specialist, I need to get more science background. It's a very competitive uh, application process. So I went to graduate school at the University of Arizona, got my PhD, five years studying planetary science, and in particular asteroids were my favorite subject. And while I was doing that research, that's when I began to apply to the astronaut program. So as I mentioned, it's very competitive. You know, I think I, I applied twice and was turned down in the late 80s uh, for the astronaut corps. Uh, you're offered a chance to update your application if you get turned down. So I did that repeatedly. And on the third try, instead of getting turned down, I got a, an invitation to go to Houston for an interview at the Space Center down there. And that year, there were 3,000 applicants, and they interviewed 120 face-to-face, -face, and then they picked 23 in that particular selection. So what are the odds that you go from 3,000 down to 23 and you make it through that? There's a lot of luck involved in the process, obviously, but it's very competitive, and you should just you know, you just realize that it's going to be an element of luck and you have to just be yourself, go down there for an interview and uh, try to convince the people on the selection board that you're somebody that they would like to work with someday in space. And so that's how I approached it was this was a great opportunity to learn more about the space business. If I failed, well, maybe I could reapply, but I wasn't going to try to be anybody I wasn't. Just present yourself as a normal human being with some some level of personality, hopefully a non-zero level of personality, and <laughs> hope that they'll like to, like to work with you. So I was lucky. So after three tries, I got hired. Uh, I will just say PS at the end of the story. Um, today, it's so competitive that the last time they asked for volunteers for the astronaut corps in 2017, they got 18,000 applications. So to cut that number down, they don't wanna have to sift through that many. They've raised the requirements today. So if you wanna be an NASA astronaut today, it's not only a four-year engineering or science degree, but then you need a master's degree or the equivalent in work experience to qualify for the initial screening. And then everything else is pretty much the same. Um, PPS, that is that the commercial space companies now are starting to carry crews into orbit for NASA at first, but they'll be flying tourists. And so you're gonna have SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic all hiring air crew, space crew to fly their vehicles and eventually there'll be space hotels and research labs up there that will hire privately space travelers to, to do that work. So there are a lot more paths open to new astronaut aspirees than there were for, for my generation. 
Yeah, you say you say there's a lot of luck involved, but I think what as Thomas Jefferson said, he said the the more I prepare, the luckier I seem to be. So I think in your case, and I think a lot of astronauts' case, I think the preparation's there, the hard work is there, and the luck might follow. But that's a that's a fantastic experience. And here we actually we love talking about commercial space on Space Jams, and we love talking about asteroids and asteroid mining and kind of how that all gets into that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Are you excited about the commercialization of space and asteroid mining, or is it kind of taking the romantic, the romantic side of space away? Oh, no, no. I think that the whole importance of space is to be another economic uh, sphere for the human, human race to take advantage of. Uh, there are natural resources, everything from sunlight, free energy, to resources on the moon and the asteroids. And uh, that we can harness to build our economy down here on the ground. And so, you know, you've got raw materials like water on the moon, water on the asteroids. Uh, in certain cases, you might even think of refining some very rare metals on the earth, like the platinum group metals and bringing them back to, to earth to help industry uh, to lower the cost of manufacturing or produce higher quality components um, using those uh, rare metals. And we can get into the, the chemistry of why they're rare on the earth and not, in the and not rare on the asteroids, if you'd like. But commercial, commercialization of space is what space is all about. This is why we explore space. So it becomes within the economic sphere, it becomes part of the economic sphere of humanity. And of course, there's scientific knowledge to be gained about the origins of life and how our planet and other planets function. Uh, what's the history of the Earth Moon system? All of these are very exciting topics to explore with robots and humans. So that's led the way. And even backing up into the 1960s, what led the way into space was, of course, great power competition. It was, it was geopolitical rather than science-driven. But you know, now we pursue scientific exploration as well as peaceful competition in space. And eventually, we're going to have this big, big growth in the commercial sector. Some of that will involve you know, human workers going to orbit, going to the moon, and going off to mine the asteroids. And so I say that the more that we can uh, increase the number of people who experience space and get to work there, the better for our economy, uh, the better for attracting talent from young people into the space um, business. And then it, it's going to stand us in very good stead having this broader economic and scientific base in orbit for our country's competitiveness in the 21st century as, as we compete with adversaries like China uh, on the technological playing field. You know, if the more you can do in space, the more talent you can attract to it, the better we're going to be off in terms of national security and economic competitiveness. And as far as asteroid mining in particular, I think that the first thing that's likely to happen is that we'll find water on the moon that's close by. And so we can make rocket fuel out of the water resources at the poles of the moon. Once that process is proven, I think then we'll have enough knowledge about the nearby asteroid population and better technological experience to go out and robotically mine the asteroids that come reasonably close to the Earth. And the first product would be rocket fuel, but as a byproduct, you might see some of these very rare metals like platinum, rhenium, osmium that can be used in industrial catalysts and processes back here on, on the ground. Yeah, so we have the OSIRIS-REx mission, which I believe is touching down tomorrow on the asteroid Bennu. Um, and then, so that's kind of like the first step where we're going to retrieve something from an asteroid and bring it back to Earth, like completely remotely. Uh, and that's kind of what, we're, what you're talking about right here. And that's kind of like a baby step into the asteroid mining world. Uh, are you like, are you, do you know a lot about OSIRIS-REx or have you been paying attention to that at all? Sure, I went to the University of Arizona, which is running the mission uh, for NASA. So the control center, the science center is there at the university. So I, and I visited the ops center and talked to the chief principal investigator, uh, Dante Loretta there, who's running the mission. He's very excited right now, I can tell you, with the adrenaline pumping on the sample return attempt tomorrow, the sampling grab attempt tomorrow. Uh, very exciting because, you know, we have, we have asteroid samples already. They're called meteorites. Mm -hmm. but we don't know where they came from. And so the importance of the Japanese Hayabusa series of missions, one and two, both bringing back uh, asteroid samples. In fact, the uh, Hayabusa 2 sample is due to arrive back on Earth in December from the asteroid uh, Ryugu. Uh, they were successful in grabbing their sample a few months back. And then OSIRIS-REx following up with a different asteroid, you know, Bennu, different materials from perhaps a different age of the early solar system. We're gonna learn a lot about how our solar system got put together, what the raw materials that formed Earth were, 
And yet both of these bodies were chosen specifically because they are water rich. And we want to get these samples back to see what kind of chemistry, what, how, what's the structure of that water uh, locked up in the minerals on Bennu, for example. And then what's the best technology to unlock that water? It's probably just simple, gentle heating using solar energy that can do that job. But you wanna make sure that you understand how the water is attached. Um, you know, I used to study this stuff when I was a graduate student and water on asteroids is not in the form of ice. It's probably in the form of clay minerals that trap water in the thin sheets of the molecular structure of a clay. And so uh, I think we can bake the water out, but until the samples come back, we don't know whether it resembles some of the uh, meteorites that we already have with water content, or whether it's just uh, a more complex problem to get this trapped water out of the rocks on these asteroids. So it's really gonna be exciting to bring these um, uh, samples with the known origin back to Earth so we can start to understand how water got into these bodies in the first place, how long it's been there, and what are the quantities available on a typical object that you might select to mine? For this uh, particular mission, I, I've had a lot of questions about um, if there could, if there's like the worries of bringing back this, um, like part of this asteroid to Earth. And in back in the Apollo days, like they would quarantine the astronauts once they came back from the moon in case of there was any biological elements like on them, any bacteria, things like that. Do they have this same kind of precaution with the OSIRIS-REx mission or missions bringing back asteroids or is that kind of, we're past that? I would say there's not much worry just because we have so many meteorites in our collection that have been falling on Earth for billions of years. And so everything that we've looked at uh, is sterile. Um, there are some amino acids in some of the uh, more um, ancient asteroids or meteorites uh, these amino acids are harmless to us. They, they just are examples of the early chemistry that was going on in the solar system and maybe even in interstellar space before the solar system formed. So they're scientifically very interesting objects. And so um, rather than a biological hazard, I think they're regarded as time capsules of the early solar system that you want to dissect for the organic chemistry that's represented there. So I don't think they've had to do anything special at all in terms of preserving the samples or isolating them from our Earth's biosphere. Um, on the other hand, you want to keep the samples pristine during the re-entry process coming back to Earth. You don't want them to get overheated. You don't want them to be exposed to the Earth's atmosphere. You want to keep them sealed hermetically in a container that you can then open up in a, in a very uh, well-controlled laboratory environment. And the Japanese did that successfully with their first Hayabusa. The second one's going to be back in December. And both NASA and, and JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, will compare notes and share samples back and forth and you know, share them out to the larger scientific community. But um, no hazard to speak of. Uh, I think it's going to be a much more complex problem when we start bringing back stuff from Mars. And that will really have to be thought over well. I don't think there's going to be anything harmful, but you, you can't be too careful, I guess. Yeah, and the... the our Juno, the Juno mission that was, you know, circling Jupiter and everything, the big problem with that was, uh, or the problem with when that was coming to the end of its life is we didn't want to crash it on the moons or just anywhere because we think there's a possibility of life or there's the right elements to have life there. So we sent it just into the heart of Jupiter so it could just burn up because we don't want to, we don't want to contaminate another world or a, a moon with our, like with our, something from our biosphere. Sure. Um, and that is the same, it's, we have that same, uh, that same feeling about Mars and the moon in a sense uh, with respect to exploration and colonization of Mars and the moon, uh, just like you said. Uh, when it comes to the exploration of Mars and the moon, um, are we, is that for the benefit of Earth or is that for the benefit of further exploration, like going farther and farther away from the Earth, in your opinion? My opinion, we're driving towards Mars because it is the most Earth-like planet in the solar system. And so it has a reasonable environmental niche where life may have hung on from the early days of the solar system. You know, uh, back when Mars was younger, it had a warmer climate. There was much more liquid water on the surface. So it's reasonable to assume that life might have gotten started there and then we know how tenacious life is here on Earth. If uh, conditions did change on Mars as they have, 
we hope that the life went somewhere where it could survive and is still there in a reservoir somewhere beneath the surface, most likely. So there's a lot of hope that we can find traces of early biology on Mars. If not living today, then perhaps fossils or traces of that ancient life that can help tell us about how biology does get started on a world uh, like Mars and like the Earth, where all the evidence has been erased by our dynamic planets, geology. So that's the, that's the driver for going to Mars. It's a, it's a harbor potentially for life. And as you mentioned in our, in our pre-podcast conversation, you know, the satellites of the giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn um, have lots of potential for biological uh, environments that might support life in the salty oceans beneath the icy crust of uh, Europa, for example, or in the water, the watery, the watery subsurface of Enceladus around Saturn, where we see geysers with organic materials spouting out from that little satellite about the size of Arizona. And even though the temperature at the surface is minus 300 Fahrenheit, down below in that warm water heated up, heated up by the tidal tugs of either Jupiter or Saturn, you might actually have biology getting started over billions of years. So it's gonna take a lot more of our technology applied to those problems to get there to sample those environments, but it's worth pursuing. So the search for life is the big driver, I think. Uh, and what's following behind the scientific pioneering is the ability to make use of the natural resources that are out there. And so the more uh, adept we are at getting into really hazardous or demanding environments, the, the easier it'll be for human and robotic um, uh, miners, for example, to get out there and exploit those resources and, and increase the wealth of humanity's um, uh, economy here. And uh, you know, just give more opportunities to everybody on earth. I don't think we're gonna be colonizing Mars in the near future, even though Elon Musk would certainly like to try. I just think it's gonna be a really tough proposition to establish people and make them self-sufficient on Mars. But it may, it may happen sooner than I expect. That's interesting. Yeah, I believe he wants to have a million people there by 2050 or something and, you know, a whole city. And you're not seeing that happen? No, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's as easy as Elon thinks. Yeah. And, and it's driven partially just by the physics of how much it costs to, to put something on the surface of Mars. Um, I think it's on the order of 30 pounds of rocket fuel just to put one pound on the moon. And it's even worse on the order of hundreds of pounds of fuel to get one pound of, of cargo on the surface of Mars. And Mars is not an easy place to exist. If you think Antarctica is harsh, Mars is 100 degrees colder. And it's got no atmosphere almost compared to the one that's over Antarctica, which we can breathe actually. So it's really tough to exist there. There are ways we can live off the land there and, and harvest the resources on Mars. There's plenty of water below the surface that we can harvest. And you can make rocket fuel out of the atmosphere. Yeah, there's, there's some positive things about Mars, but it's going to be very hard to imagine it as a self-supporting colony. So um, uh, there's, there's no export except knowledge that I know of from Mars that would be economically valuable. Um, so scientific pursuit is one thing, but, and so is pure exploration. You know, I want to get there because it's there. That's a valid human reason for exploring, but somebody has to pay the price for that and, and write the budget checks. And I don't think Elon has deep enough pockets to get himself there. Yeah, yeah we always, we, uh, we, we talked about on one of our episodes, we had a, uh, a whole discussion about US presidents that we believe had great impact on space. And we say, this, you, have to, you have to inspire the people with the speeches and then you have to bring some type of some type of monetary value to Congress, like to get these kind of things done. And now it's changed a little bit with commercial space, but uh, it takes a lot of money uh, to do what they're trying to do. And so, I kind I hope they get there by 2050. That'd be great if we were completely uh, interplanetary species by then. But you know, we'll see. Human explorers, I think, will be there by 2050, but uh, they'll probably be on a rotating basis, and the the establishment on Mars will be more like um, an Antarctic research outpost than a colony of people going to ordinary jobs and having homes there and so on. Yeah, maybe this um, quarantine will, will be good practice for that situation when that happens. Yeah, Our, It's a big challenge and that's a whole great, that's a great topic to explore is how you keep people productive and healthy and engaged on these multi-year trips into deep space. 
Yeah, there was a lot of uh, posting uh, in the beginning of this whole situation, or about like a month in, when we realized it wasn't going to end in uh, two weeks, where astronauts were coming out about how they kept themselves going and productive in space when they were up there for very long uh, periods of times, and I found them to be very helpful and insightful. Uh, it was it was essentially like you got to keep yourself in a good mood and you have to you have to give yourself goals like every day to get things done and uh that gets you through the day so that was that was that was very interesting mm-hmm. you don't think about it as a it's like part of the training correct uh kind of there's a lot of training that goes into being an astronaut obviously i don't think they give you a lot of training in how to entertain your and motivate yourself uh day to day i think they expect a professional to have that kind of uh, internal motivation you know you've got a record of self being a self starter uh, you've got a record of pulling off projects that you've that you've taken on. So they don't expect that you'll have any problems getting your work done. But to keep your morale up, that's a big concern. And, and there's there's no particular specific training for that. That's going to have to come inside you. And what NASA or what the uh, uh, Exploration Consortium of our international partners and NASA can do is, you know, provide a crew the tools for recreation and for self-help and for maintaining good mental health as well as physical health. And you know, part of that is support from the ground while you're in transit. And part of it is the materials and the technologies that you provide. So you can imagine virtual reality and entertainment. Um, you can, uh, um, what's the word? Um, even AI assistants or avatars that could be flown, flying along with you to, to keep you engaged. And you know, you've got to have that mix of tools that a, a person can draw on to keep themselves healthy and uh, with a good outlook for their mission. Um, we've got lots of examples from the historic era of exploration on Earth where expeditions went off the rails because of isolation and a severe, in, a severe environment outside, like in the, in the Arctic or Antarctic and, or on the ocean on a long voyage. So lots of bad examples and we can draw and learn from those and, and make sure they don't occur on a long space voyage. Mm. And you yourself have spent about 55 days in space. Is that correct? 50, 53. 53. 53 days in space, over four different missions. And can you tell us a little bit yeah, about right. your time in space and your time in the ISS? Right. I had four missions. They were all on the space shuttle. I flew on the Endeavour twice and then Columbia and then Atlantis. First three were scientific research missions. And so I flew in 1994 twice, I flew in 96 once. And the first two missions were uh, called the Space Radar Lab series of missions where we explored Earth using a planetary science instrument, uh, an imaging radar flown in orbit around the Earth instead of around Venus, for example, or around Mars, looking at our Earth as a planet and you know, looking at every aspect of Earth science that we could with the radar, which is a very versatile instrument, looking at everything from tectonic faults to active volcanoes to plankton in the ocean to uh, the health of crops around the world, the, the moisture content of the soil. So we did it all in Earth science on those first two flights. The third flight on Columbia was to launch two science satellites, one an, one an astrophysics observatory and one a material science lab on two separate reusable satellites from Columbia. And then after they did their work, we retrieved those and brought them back for their refurbishment and for their next uh, venture into space. And then my last trip was on the Atlantis to the space station in 2001, where our job was to be construction workers. And so we were putting together a laboratory in space, but our job wasn't to actually do the experiments in the lab. It was to deliver the lab and turn the lights on and put the, uh, hook up the power and gas lines and the computer uh, connections you know, to, the, to the broadband internet. <laughs> and so we were... Um, a construction crew hauling up the big U.S. science lab, Destiny. And that was my, uh, not my longest trip. It was only about 13 days versus 18 on my longest trip, but it was certainly the most action-packed in terms of the missions that I took on. So we had uh, to launch, uh, get to orbit, match orbits with the space station and rendezvous and dock with the space station and the three people that were living up there, uh, dock safely and then unlimber the robot arm and then our crew remove the laboratory destiny, 16-ton laboratory, um, from the cargo bay about the size of a school bus, picked it up, and then very gently and carefully and precisely birthed it 
at the front end of the space station, locked it into place. And then my partner, Bob Kirby, and I on the Atlantis crew did 19 hours of spacewalks outside to hook up all the external utility connections on the laboratory and get the lights turned on and get the thermal regulation started and hook up all the uh, data cables and communications cables uh, outside and prepare the laboratory for its role as the science nerve center of the station, which it still is today. And so that was a tremendously rewarding job was to be at the space station, live up there for a week and help the crew uh, activate the new laboratory, get all the equipment handed over to them that we had brought up and then uh, enjoy those, those three spacewalks where you are a little satellite of Earth in your personal spaceship uh, for the time that you're working out there. That's just a mind-blowing experience. And I hope you'll get a chance to do it, and I hope a, a lot more people will get to spacewalk in the years ahead, maybe just as a part of an adventure vacation rather than really um, serious construction work. But uh, there's nothing like that kind of a space experience. So that was my most challenging and rewarding mission. There are no badge shuttle missions and I didn't have any bad missions of my own, but that was the one that incorporated more of what astronauts do in space than any of the other three. Wow, that's incredible. Hey, if you want me to spacewalk, please feel free to recommend that I go on the next one and I'll be there. Don't worry. Uh, I'll definitely sign up. Um, but so you are actually our first guest to be in the vacuum of space in a suit working outside of the International Space Station. And so that's like one of the, I think that's a lot of people's dreams, just like you said, you hope we can do it. Um, and then also in your book, you mentioned, um, in your book, Skywalking, you mentioned the, the spiritual dimensions of flying in space. Uh, and I wanted to know what you meant by that necessarily. Well, I think in my case, I was successful in space because of the spiritual help I got from God, uh, both in all of the pursuit of the astronaut job that I did over the years growing up and working as a, a, an Air Force pilot and then as a scientist. Um, I would never have gotten there without some, some celestial help, if you will. And, you know, I, I prayed for success. I prayed for extra assistance. I prayed for all the help that I could get during my astronaut interview, you know, so I could keep my wits about me and, and not make a fool of myself. So, um, and that was part of uh, surviving in space. You know, I thought that, um, you know, I've been given a lot of um, natural talents and skills such as they are. And I think that's due to, you know, God's grace. And I thought I needed to take full advantage of those talents to get to space and back safely, but also do productive work up there. And so that's the time when you, you do call on the Lord for all the help that you can get. Help me do the best job I can. That's what you're praying for. And help me help my crewmates and don't let me let them down. That's, those are the kinds of prayers that go through your mind. So faith has always been a big part of my life from uh, a very young age. I'm a Catholic, practicing Catholic. And um, I could always, I always have felt that I could call on the, on the Lord for extra help. And so you've heard of the, the, the book and the movie from the 1940s, God is my co-pilot. <laughs> well, that's, that's the kind of role I uh, called on God to play during my uh, journeys to space. And I think you get rewarded uh, for this faith in a way. I don't think it's a, a special gift to just Catholics or, or people who are spiritual or people who are um, believers in space, everybody who goes to space gets this gift, and that is you get to see our planet from orbit. And to see the world as it is in the universe is really a special gift. And to me, I, I felt very grateful for that as a divine gift um, to this very puny human being, very special gift. But I think everybody gets that experience, whether you're a believer or not. And so to me, I found that that revelation of how earth looks from space is really um, a, a very emotional and special reward for making that journey up there. It's a dangerous journey and you, you pray for help in making it back safely. And then you say prayers of thanks when you get there for getting the job done successfully, but also for this gift of seeing the beauty of the earth from space. And I hope, I hope millions of humans will get to see that themselves in the near future. I think that is, I think that's one of the most interesting things to me too, uh, when it comes to the history of space travel, really. Um, one uh, I posted a while ago on our Space Jam Instagram, there's a piece of the moon in the Washington Cathedral that was brought back by the Apollo 11 mission. 
Uh, and it's and of course when the Apollo 11 the mission when Buzz Aldrin was on the moon he took communion, uh, and so it seems that in our in a in faith like personally like person to person astronaut astronaut when people go someplace they they don't just go as a scientist they don't just go as a test pilot they don't just go as a father or a husband they go the the entirety of that human being goes into space and faith a lot of the time comes with them and so i always find that to be extremely interesting and it's one of the most personal things that you can bring with you and then share of course yeah Right. I, I, and I wrote in Skywalking about my spiritual experiences up there. And I think people are spiritual beings and we want to be, you know, we need extra help to understand the spiritual, spiritual dimension of our existence on earth, whatever you want to call that. I call it a, you know, a spiritual dimension of our souls. And we want to naturally engage that part of our brain of our spirituality as, in space, as well as on earth. You know, you can't live your life as a spiritual person, and then go to space and turn that off and be completely antiseptic about the whole experience. It's just part of what helps you succeed. And I, I believe that I was given a lot of help along the way and uh, a lot of help when I was doing my, my job up there. And so I'm very grateful for the, the, the intensity of the emotional experience I had in space, both the view of the earth and both the uh, knowing how close you are to complete an instant death up there in space. You can ameliorate that with the, the faith that someone's going to be helping you out and you will be brought back through this experience, this, this crucible and come back home to your family and your loved ones again. So that's a faith that really, I think helps people get through that very intense experience. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think it's super important to have those things follow you when you explore. Uh, it's just part of the part of being a human being. Um, yeah. And then you've written many books um, and you're an author and you've given many speeches. Um, do you feel that it's important that you share your story with the world? I mean, we here at Space Jams obviously believe that it's important. Uh, we love talking about space, but do you in particular? Well, when you took on the job of being an NASA astronaut, you took on the job of being a communicator of your space experiences to the public because after all the public's paying for them as taxpayers, paying for those experiences and you know, the least you owe those people, all of your fellow citizens is to share that experience with them. So that's part of your job as an astronaut is to go out and speak in public. And on, on the average, I was doing that a couple of times a month for the 11 years I was a, a NASA employee. And it was enjoyable for me. It's, I did like that. And I did like relating the experiences, but it's such an imperfect process. You know, you're limited by your own voice and your own articulation, your own skill as a speaker. Um, you do have some extra tools, you know, you've got pictures that you can bring back to communicate videos now that are very, uh, getting in, in such, such great quality, they almost match the, the lived experience up there. So I've always enjoyed combining those skills of speaking and then showing the visuals, um, bringing people along on your journey and sharing that experience. And so when I left NASA, one of the first missions I gave myself after was to convey this experience in a deeper way than I could uh, through just sp spoken word um, and short interviews. So I wanted to get it all down on paper before I forgot about all of the details of the experience. So that's what led to my memoir, Skywalking. And I, I still continue to believe that it's important that we communicate these experiences to not only the taxpayers, but also to um, people who might be considering space as a career someday to open up their minds to the opportunities that are out there. So my current book project, you know, I, I finished um, Ask the Astronaut, my Q&A book in 2016. And this, the next one I'm working on now is called Space Shuttle Stories, which is about the human dimension of the space shuttle experience over the 30 year career of the space shuttle. So there were 135 space shuttle missions and I hope to have a story from every one of those flights to share with you in just a year or two. Wow, that actually, that sounds awesome. I, yeah, our, my favorite part about space is humans <laughs> and what we do in space. That's the, that's the best part. That sounds incredible. It's very hard, obviously. I mean, I've not been doing this very long, but I've, you're the second astronaut I've talked to. And every time we talk to an astronaut, we get a different perspective of what's like a different personal perspective of what space means to them. And so that, that sounds awesome. 
Now, a lot of people have come back and wanted to share their experiences. So a number of astronauts have written books about their journeys. Um, a few of the space station people have. Uh, Kathy Sullivan just came out with a book last winter about her uh, work on the Hubble telescope. Um, you know, you've heard of the Scott Kelly book called Endurance about his uh, year-long journey on the space station. So it's great that we're getting so many uh, astronaut authors out there. Uh, and yet, you know, there were 135 shuttle missions and maybe 10 people have written books about their space shuttle experiences. So I think that um, I'm going to try to gather together the best of these stories and, and bring them to the public. And that'll be my, uh, that'll be a very rewarding project for both uh, me and then also uh, I'll be helping my colleagues get the word out. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I can't wait to get it whenever I get to read. You know, usually I'm reading books that people are telling me to read. It's nice to read something that I actually want to pick up. Oh, good. <laughs> now, I've already interviewed about 50 astronauts for the book out of 135. And I can tell you that there's just some stories I've never heard of before. And they're really, really exciting, rewarding, emotional, and, and funny. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this collection. That's Awesome. I think... I like that you say funny because there's, I always want to figure this out, but there's something incredibly important about humor uh, when it comes to human beings and exploration. Um, and I think especially in times where you said like you, you know, you're moments away from death, like out the door is a vacuum of space and things like that. Like, if you can answer this, how, how big of a impact does humor have? in space exploration? Well, it's sort of like whistling past the graveyard, right? You know, so you're up there in this really harsh environment and you're living in a shirt sleeve cabin where it's nice and toasty at 70 degrees and the sun's shine is streaming in the windows and you're wearing a polo shirt and, you know, it's a very normal environment except for being weightless, of course. But then one of your colleagues, you know, on, on my first flight, it was Jay App, my astronaut friend who said, you know, just think you're three inches away here from instant death because that's how much window pane there was between us and the vacuum outside. And I go, oh, okay, Jay, thanks for that reminder. You know, so, um, and you know, all you can do is laugh in situations like that. Um, you know, you, you mentally understand the, the environment that you're in, but of course you need some kind of emotional way to, to get over that and get on with your job. You can't be thinking about what could go wrong every second because you'd be incapacitated. So instead you trust to the people who built the spaceship and to your colleagues like Jay, who you know, are expertly helping you get through the mission. And then you put all your skills together and get, get on with the work. So, but laughing is a big part of it. On my Columbia mission, we had um, five people on the crew and up there for 18 days and I would never have gotten through it. We had, we had a pretty heavy workload and I would have never gotten through it had we not been able to just tell jokes all the time. <laughs> so we had a couple of Navy guys, uh, Kent Rominger and uh, Ken Cockrell, uh, Navy test pilots, they were at the, the, the flight crew, the, the flight deck crew, and they had so many funny Navy stories that I, of course, I can't share all of them here in the interview, but um, they just knocked my socks off with jokes one after the other. They, they remembered aircraft carrier stories or flying stories, and, you know, at the end of the day, my cheeks hurt from smiling and grinning so much from make, those guys making me laugh. So, you know, just an example, they had, uh, you remember the Top Gun movie, right? Mm -hmm. so Tom Cruise's call sign is? Maverick. Maverick, okay. So the, everybody in the Navy has a call sign. And so <laughs> last name of a Navy pilot, his, his name was Wise. So what would his call sign be? Wise? Uh, um, no, Not I so. Oh, Not so. <laughs> so, so yeah, you might think it's ice pick or something like that. No, it's just not so. So they had a million stories like that. And that really helped to pass the time and break up the tension that we had up there. Yeah, that's, I think that's incredible. And I, you know, you love the laugh. Part of being human is the laugh, making jokes. It's fantastic. And all these things that uh, they, they follow you into space. It doesn't change. And it's, it's just awesome to hear. I'm hoping I can laugh when I'm on the Virgin Galactic flight. Oh, you will. You will. Uh, you know, exhilaration is the big emotion in the space flight experience, at least at first, uh, and especially your first trip. And so you will laugh with relief from the tension and you'll be, you'll laugh that you made it to space and are still alive. And uh, you'll laugh with the jokes that your friends tell. So it's, it's really a, it's really a, a buoyant atmosphere on almost any mission I've been on. That's great.
I'm sure the first thing I'll do if I ever do it is cry uh, a lot because uh, not a big fan of roller coasters. Um, don't think I'll be a big fan of being in a rocket. Um, of course, you actually have that experience. How, how was your first flight? The, the roller coaster comparison is actually overdrawn because it's not as violent as a roller coaster. Uh, you know, a roller coaster throws you around up and down, backwards and forwards, accelerates you, and then you go weightless and all that. And, you know, a rocket ride is not that violent and different from second to second. Instead, it's a steady acceleration. Yeah, there's some shaking and there's some noise, uh, but it's not anything as violent as you've experienced on a roller coaster. So a uh, roller coaster can't keep you at three Gs of acceleration like the shuttle can for a minute at a time, but three Gs is something you can do in your sleep. So it's, it's not fighter pilot level G acceleration. So you're gonna survive it just fine. And intellectually, you know what's going on in that process of being accelerated from zero to 17,500 miles per hour. Uh, but uh, the physical sensation is really exhilarating to realize not only that, yeah, I'm going to get up to five miles per second here at the end of this process, but also to realize that you're in the middle of this incredibly violent process of being accelerated into orbital velocity, and yet you're still in one piece. You know, your little body is still holding together. That's a miracle. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I hope that one day we can all do that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got to wait a little bit longer, I guess. Save your pennies. Oh, I will. I will. Now, we have, I, got a, uh, I have an interesting question. I had a question from one of my family members, actually. And it was, as a shuttle-era astronaut, was there any mentoring from the uh, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo-era astronauts? Or were they, were they involved in any way? Is there like a society of astronauts? Well, I'll answer the first, uh, the second part first. Yes, there is a society, professional society of astronauts. It's called the Association of Space Explorers, ASE. That's a global outfit, has more than 300 members from uh, 30 countries plus around the world, all, all space flyers. The only qualification to join is you have to complete one orbit of the Earth in a spaceship, and then you can be a, a, a member of the ASE. So, uh, those numbers are increasing, and we're going to have a lot more members probably from the commercial field um, in the next few years. So when I arrived at NASA in 1990, we had one Apollo astronaut still working for the astronaut office, John Young, who walked on the moon on Apollo 16, first commander of the space shuttle. And John was a national hero. Six flights uh, blasted off from the moon. You could give him credit for a seventh liftoff there. Um, so John was a technical advisor to the chief of flight crew operations. So he was around at our weekly meetings every week. I got to fly jets with him. I got to ride the simulator, the shuttle simulator with him and learn some uh, tricks of the trade from John Young. So what an experience to talk with a moonwalker and to fly a jet across the Gulf of Mexico at night at 39,000 feet and just cruising along there under the brilliant stars. And you can say, hey, John, what was it like on the moon? What was it like to drive the moon rover and things like that? And he would actually be a little embarrassed about it, getting asked questions like that, but he would answer. Um, we had connections also about once a year, there'd be a reunion, maybe every two years, where all the astronauts were invited back. And then we saw some of the Apollo people come in um, and the Gemini and uh, a few of the surviving Mercury guys would come by too. And occasionally they would give us a, a lecture, you know, a professional talk um, for the astronauts, but uh, that was more the exception rather than the rule. But I do remember um, John Young, of course, talked about his voyages in several lectures to my new astronaut uh, candidate class. And Neil Armstrong came by and talked about test flying and the experience of moving from high speed aviation into the early astronaut uh, corps during the 1960s. And he told us a little bit about the moon landing, but that wasn't the focus of the talk. So what one of the most rewarding aspects of the job was for me was to make these connections between my heroes as a kid and my professional brotherhood, if you will, or sisterhood. Um, so we had uh, chances to socialize with people like Neil Armstrong or Mike Collins or Buzz Aldrin and, and to be in their eyes a colleague rather than just a, a fan that was very rewarding to realize that you had made it up into this group and you could talk at, prof at the professional level and the social level with these, these heroes of yours. That's incredible. And I think from what I've read, uh, like the biographical information about those astronauts and things, they, they went from being test pilots, most of them, and uh, you know, army guys, Navy guys, to 
then becoming like superstars and it kind of happened very quickly. Uh, and I don't think a lot of them saw themselves as that necessarily. They didn't see themselves as being like big heroes. They saw themselves as doing their job. Um, did, did you get any of that from them? Uh, the ones that you talked to, was it, was it a burden on them to be viewed in this way? Oh, I think they all suffered from the press attention and the public microscope that they were under during the, the moon race during the 60s. Um, that largely went away with the shuttle era coming along. But yeah, they, they were under a microscope. Their families had very little privacy during the 1960s. And that was you know, a, a tough toll that it took on their families. However, I think that they realized that was part of the job. You know, if you were going to be the public representative of NASA in the competition with the Soviets to put the first person on the moon, naturally, there was going to be a lot of focus on the people that were going to carry out that mission. So that was just part of the job that they had signed up for. Um, but they were very approachable. Jim, you know, you, you would uh, talk to them at a professional meeting or at one of our reunions. And there was, there were, you know, everybody has a pilot ego if you're a test pilot, I think. Um, and you, yes, you're the best pilot in the room. That's what you have to believe if you're going to survive. However, that's not on display when you're at one of these professional gatherings. You know, there people are very approachable and I, I formed friendships with um, many of the Apollo astronauts. Not that we were guys who shared a work experience together, but you're in the same business. And so um, I, I think that they appreciated the mutual respect between their colleagues and, and them. And that was shared by a lot of the people that I've worked with. I think the best part of my job as an astronaut was working with the most creative, intelligent people that the country can put in one room. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And we always say space, I, I say space is the great uniter. You know, space gets everybody on the same page, gets everybody moving in one direction, and it requires a great amount of uh, collaboration. And that's kind of one of the great things about it. No matter how much money Elon Musk has or uh, Jeff Bezos has, you can't do it alone. So it takes, it takes, a, it takes a village. Yeah, those guys have put together good teams, and that's why they've succeeded thus far and it'll be the key to their success in the future too they have to bring the right talents and people into the organization to, to allow them to succeed yeah that is incredible well it's very cool to see that uh you know growing up you admired these guys and then you became a colleague of theirs and that's a very interesting thing i think that's how it goes with a lot of uh young people once they get into their profession they see these people as heroes and then then one day you're just you talk to him and you're like oh he's just a person or she's just a person that's kind yeah, of they're as human as i am so they're you know we all have our our faults and we all have our, our pluses and so it's great to just know these people as human beings yeah yeah i think i still i'm still a little starstruck most of the time i have to suppress a lot of feelings when i talk to astronauts there's a lot of screaming and high-pitched noises <laughs> um a great, uh, well, a question I like to ask a lot because I think it's important for me, um, but I think it's important for a lot of younger people. You say there's, you know, there was 18,000 applications to be to the astronaut corps um, in 2017, did you say? Yes. And so the, the, there's a growing number of people who want to go to space. So that is, that's happening. Um, but how do we get the younger generation excited about space? How do we continue that growth? I think you motivate people by presenting them with big challenges. And you tell them that there's a team of people who want to put the first man and woman, woman back on the moon since 1972, or there's a team that's working to put uh, first robots and then human explorers on Mars. And we want you to be a part of it. And you invite them to be a part of solving those problems that nobody's been able to crack before. And so I think that that's what draws people in, a challenge that really intrigues them that they feel that they can make a contribution towards. So um, that's what drew me in during the space race of the 1960s. And I think the country then has to take on a big challenge in this next generation to draw those young people in with their talents as well. If you just say, well, for the next 25 years, we're gonna be orbiting a space station around the earth. Great, we'll make great scientific discoveries, but that's not going to be the, a sufficient draw to pull in, um, you know, the thousands of people that you need to keep your tech sector uh, invigorated. You need to put really tough problems out in front of them, like, yeah, uh, survive a, a three-year round trip to Mars and to establish an outpost out there searching for life, or 
we're going to mine the South Pole of the Moon and, and make rocket fuel out of the natural resources that are out there. Something like that. Never been done. We're not repeating Apollo. Something like that is what you need, a, a, is the challenge that you need to draw young people in and tell them to get their math and science and engineering qualifications and then join our team if you're good enough. That will challenge people. Right, yeah, yeah, you don't wanna, you know, it's, the world is full of uh, competition and that it's driven through people once again. Give them something they can't do, I understand, or to give them a new problem. Sounds yes, like, and you, sounds like a good plan to me. And the teamwork is a, an essential part of that. It, we're not looking for, uh, of course, we need Einsteins and some people who are individually brilliant. But we're going to get more done typically with a lot of maybe less smart people, almost as smart as an Einstein, but a lot of smart people who can work together and pool their talents. And that really makes things happen. Uh, I rode spaceships that were composed of millions of parts all of which had to work almost flawlessly for you to come back alive. And it just amazed me when I was in that spaceship, whether it was blasting off or re-entering the atmosphere or taking me to the space station, I just would occasionally take a mental step back and say, good Lord, somebody has imagined and designed this machine and put it together with human hands. And it's doing these marvelous things that nobody could have ever dreamed of 50 years ago. So, it's just amazing what people working together can pull off. And that's what I think would intrigue young people is to say, you can create something also unbelievable when you get your, your talents applied to this situation. So come and join us and let's solve these problems together. Yeah, you, and you talked about somebody had to imagine this thing that I'm in right now. And a big thing for us as Space Champs is uh, talking about science fiction. Um, we're not sure if you're a science fiction guy, but you're an author. Uh, do you have a favorite science fiction book? Yes, I have right on the shelf about 10 feet away from me. I have a copy of 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm. written by Arthur C. Clarke in about 1968 or so. It really was a book that came out of the creation of the movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, he had a short story, I think it was called The Sentinel, that Clarke wrote. And that was the germ that led to Stanley Kubrick, the director, making the, this Titanic sci-fi film 2001 a space odyssey that was released in 68 a little over 50 years ago that had a big effect on me as a 13 year old i was really just blown away by the visuals of that movie and the the, the vision of an expedition not only to the moon but to jupiter um, and then clark and kubrick together collaborated on a, an actual sci-fi novel that was sort of paralleling the movie development that was released around the same time and so that that book and that movie really had a, a big effect on my interest in space. I really wanted to be a part of this future in 2001 they were envisioning. And so it wound up yeah, in 2001, I was at a space station around Earth. So it wasn't fully realized in terms of how far we'd gotten in the book, but we had come part of the way and uh, we had a better toilet than they had in the movie too, by the way. So yeah, that's, that's probably the most um, uh, influential science fiction book I've written. In fact, after the mission that I went to the space station on STS-98, um, I flew that copy of 2001 with me on the shuttle Atlantis. And we were on the first flight, the first human flight of 2001. So that mission was special for that reason. I had the book with me and when I got back uh, through a mutual friend, I got in touch with Clark and said, hey, I flew your novel on the Atlantis on the first flight of 2001. And I got an email back from him saying, oh, that's really great. Glad you enjoyed the book. So nice to hear it flew in space. And I said, you know, when I first read your novel, uh, Dr. Clark, I, I didn't really understand the ending. And he says, that's okay. A lot of people have that reaction. He says, my prescription for that is, you know, read the book, see the movie, repeat as often as necessary. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, awesome. And so I got his signature pasted into the book. He sent me a little uh, gummed label you know with a signature to put into it so in fact i've donated that book to the smithsonian institution oh that's great so in fact i i fibbed i don't actually have it on my shelf i forgot that i, I put it down to the smithsonian <laughs> it's down there now that's awesome i i actually was i was i would have had an internship at the air and space museum this summer but covid messed it up i could have grabbed it for you could have brought it back you know we could have had it for us <laughs> Yeah, they, they did a nice exhibition last year, the 50th anniversary of the movie. 
for 2001. And at, at the Air and Space Museum in downtown Washington, they had uh, a recreation of the, the bedroom that was seen at the end of the movie. And on the exhibitry around that recreated bedroom, uh, it was like a movie set. Around the exhibitry was, was a picture of my book that I'd flown in space that um, had been connected with, uh, with my career. So, you know, the, the reach of 2001 is, is, is really long and really broad. It's, it's reached millions of people. Yeah, and now, do you think that science fiction as a, as a genre, as a whole, is important to furthering space exploration? Sure, it gives you a chance to imagine yourself playing a role in that kind of big adventure. So The Martian is a good example. Uh, first, a really successful novel, which I really enjoyed. And then the film was, was as, as good as a science fiction film gets, in my opinion. So, um, and that is set in the near future. So a lot of people watching that, young people especially watching that, can imagine themselves playing a role in that future. It might not be exactly like we've seen it in, in a movie like The Martian or Gravity or Interstellar, but you know, something like it's going to happen and you can make it happen. Amen. Yeah, we, we love The Martian around here. Book, movie, everything. Fantastic. Kind of technical, also very funny. Got great music. Fantastic. Well, sir, we are running out of time, but it has been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Uh, the listeners, I'm sure, are going to be absolutely enamored with the conversation. Uh, we're going to have a post on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at Space Jams. Uh, let us uh, know how you think. What do you think? Got any questions? Um, thanks for listening. Uh, feel free to uh, send us, you know, money because I'm poor um, and we need it to keep this going. Um, but everyone, have a good day and remember to keep looking up. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Jim. And uh, check out my website too. It's called astronauttomjones.com. Glad to be a guest on the program. Check it out.